Welcome back to the Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst for your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today, we've got Sarah Gullickson. She's the founder and CEO of Cannabis Business Advisors. They are a consulting firm that provides advisory service to companies and entrepreneurs operating in the cannabis industry. Sarah, thanks for being with us on the Talking Hedge. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so let's start off. Tell us a little bit about how or maybe why you got into the industry and then how your approach has changed over time. Yeah, so I've been in the industry a while. Um, I got involved before the industry was really even an industry. So I think I'm at like 14 years now. Um, and just to be like in the simplest form, I had an advertising ag- agency for spa salons and health facilities and a company asked if I could help them market cannabis. And at the time we called it pot, right? So um, growing up in a naturopathic household, I didn't think it was, you know, the devil's lettuce or whatever people were calling it at the time. So um, I started in the industry and it was, um, you know, fast paced and I was learning a lot. And as a young, you know, woman that wanted to potentially be an entrepreneur at some time, it had all of the, you know, moving pieces that kept me interested. And so I'm I'm still here, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot has changed, though. I would imagine that uh, over yeah. time, it's it's been a little bit different. Um, is there anything like right now that you would advise from like a dispensary standpoint? Has anything changed over time? Would you advise that they go vertically integrated, whereas before you maybe said just specialize in retail? Or what's your advice now, and and how's that changed over time as it pertains to dispensaries? You know, like for the application piece of the business, which is what our company specializes in, the applications in the last 14 years are really the same. They have the same ingredients, the same components. You need a good team. You need good real estate. You need financing. You need community support. So on the application side of things, things have remained pretty steady. I think the amount of capital to get into the industry is significantly more. And then on the operations side of things, you know, I think the old mentality is if you build it, they will come. And now we know businesses are going out of business. Some of the states don't have cap or have unlimited licenses, so they're not, you know, capped. And so at that point, I really encourage clients to figure out what their niche is. What are they doing special? What are they offering that's special? Um, And how are they catering to either their patients or their clients? And so... You know, I think it's a joke that we have to tell people, like, you have to run it like it's a regular business. You're not just going to make millions and, you know, put them under your mattress. But that's, I think, the stage that we're at in the industry where the consumer is more educated. And so, you know, the store has to be more, um, you know, sophisticated, I guess. What about valuations? I was just down in Silicon Valley pitching for a fintech app that we have, um, and valuations are a lot lower than they were. And I imagine cannabis, um, you know, isn't as much as people think. Like there was a license in Washington where I'm from and the guy wanted, I think, a hundred or $150,000 for a producer and processor license separate from uh, retail because we don't have vertical integration here. But the reality is those same licenses are selling for 30000 and less. So what have you seen in terms of um, capital raises, valuations? Um, are they are they holding still? Or are they plummeting? Are they increasing in new emerging markets? What are you seeing? So, I mean, I think the conversation is like market per market. So if you have, you know, no caps on licenses, 
then naturally the licenses are worth less. And so a lot of the states that we're seeing come down the pipeline are not planning on capping licenses. New Jersey is a great example of that. So it's a free market. The only thing that caps the licenses are the municipalities. So, I mean, I think that that's definitely a case by case situation. From a broad stroke, valuations are much less than they were two, two and a half years ago because the industry is leveling out from COVID. Um, you know, back, you know, two years ago when everybody was working from home on Zoom calls, had government money coming into their bank account without doing anything. Um, you know, the businesses were really thriving and here I'm based in Arizona um, and Arizona is vertically integrated. Our licenses are, you know, anywhere worth eight to the upward of 50 million. And so we have really, really strong valuations here. And even this market struggling significantly in the sense that, you know, price per pound used to be 2200 and now people can't, you know, get rid of them for 800 So I think it's natural for the industry to kind of course correct with, you know, kind of how much it's been blown up over the last five years as far as, you know, companies going public, raising, you know, free money or the valuations being a billion dollars when they should maybe be like 200 million. Um, and then uh, as, you know, from a consumer perspective, people were just spending a lot more money on cannabis when they had, you know, different budgets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet um, you said New Jersey unlimited license state. We've seen some of the issues already um, maybe posing potential issues for New Jersey and Oklahoma, Oregon that have ridiculous amounts of licenses. Oklahoma, I think, has still um, they had like 7000 at one point. I don't know how ridiculous it is at this point, but um, are there any spots where you advise not to do business? You know, I think the operators that really know what they're doing, they know how to stand up a store, they know how, you know, much they're spending per square feet, foot, whether that's cultivation, manufacturing, and or dispensary, you know, those are the kind of operators that are going to thrive in these open markets, right? Because they have a business model that's worked time and time and time again. I'm not saying new business owners shouldn't get into the business there, but it's a much harder feat. When you're having to, you know, spend a lot more money on marketing and advertising and really refining your processes to ensure that you do have the best quality product. Um, I We don't work a lot in checklist markets. Um, we did a lot of different projects in New Jersey when it was first starting because it was very unclear on how everything was going to roll out, if the municipalities were going to let people come in or if they weren't. And in New Jersey specifically, when we were working with clients, we were finding municipalities that were going to allow one or two dispensaries so that you could run a nice business and not get like, you know, killed. Um, but again, we, we specialize in limited license merit-based processes. We've had to change our approach with doing social equity projects, lottery projects, and had to get creative in how we pull revenue through the firm. Um, but a newbie, that has never been in the industry before that's looking for an opportunity like we always say where do you live do you have community involvement have you opened businesses there before and at that point that's a good fit for a cannabis license for a local person i think it's really hard for me living in arizona let's say i'd never been in the cannabis business before to all of a sudden be like, oh, guess what? I want a New Jersey license or whatever that looks like. I mean, unless you have a team that's on the ground over there for something else. So the local ties are, are very important. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think it's also important to, to know tips and tricks on how to even get something as what should be as simple as um, social equity license. Having worked in the banking industry and, and seen um, SBA loans, they're very, very challenging to get no matter who you are, or what you're applying for, um, when you think it should just kind of be straightforward. And so I'm curious what you've seen on the social equity license side and any kind of pro tips you've got to get that approved? You know, the social equity conversation, you know, just really opens up a can of worms. Um, we did social equity here in Arizona. We did social equity in Illinois. We did social equity. We've done social equity, I think, in like five states. I actually just won a social equity license in New York with my local partner. That's the social equity candidate. And I had very high hopes for New York. I'm like, you know what? This makes sense. Um, when we were like looking for candidates or candidates to potentially partner with, we were calling them unicorns because the parameters in which these people had to have were, were, were hard to find, right? It was somebody that was wronged by cannabis criminalization or somebody that had offenses, but that person also had to have business acumen and they had to have a, a business that, you know, had been up and running and profitable for two years. So we ended up finding, um, a woman there and, she has a salon, her family members have, you know, sneaker shops and they're like, you know, local businesses in that area. And so we were very excited knowing that um, there was a potential fund for the social equity candidates, which we hadn't seen in the past, um, and that they were potentially going to bring real estate to the table, which I mean, that I guess I should have known it was too good to be true, right? And then, you know, fast forward, licenses started being awarded in November, they're still being awarded now. And, you know, there was crickets when it came to the fund. Where's the fund? Where's the fund? Where's the fund? It was nowhere. So the fund just got activated a couple of weeks ago and they were saying that the fund was going to be like 1% for financing. And guess what? It's 12, 13% now. And your build out is $450 a foot, which is like double what you would normally pay. So I haven't seen social equity executed in a way that it's really setting up the social equity candidates for, you know, longevity and for a business that they can pass down to their children, um, for people that like really want to work in the business. And so not to be critical of the whole social equity conversation, because I think it needs to exist. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, the, so the typical social equity candidates that we're finding to help apply for, um, you know, a lot of them don't even have the capital to put the application in. So there has to be a fund that's matched with that. But a fund at 12% is not really setting anybody up for success except for the fund. So it's um, it's a double-edged sword. You know, the industry is very new and we're going to have a lot of conversations like this moving forward in the sense that we're all still trying to perfect the models and trying to really understand like what infrastructure works and what different environments um, so I'm not like trying to be overcritical. It's just, they haven't been executed very great. Mm -hmm. so yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a new industry, right? And there's a lot of people jumping in that have never done it before. And some that have, but they don't understand the amount of compliance. And I'm not even talking about the publicly traded companies with the, the just normal companies. What are you telling them in order to stay in compliance? There's a lot, a lot of issues out there. Um, what are some of the more common issues you're seeing? 
Yeah, so for the larger facilities, we we recommend having at least a part-time compliance officer on staff just to make sure that things are done properly. Um, from like a smaller facility standpoint, we'll work hand in hand with any of those facilities to help them draft their standard operating procedures to ensure that they're compliant with the code and to give their staff the proper documentation so that they know what they're doing. Um, we've opened a lot of facilities over the United, across the United States and, you know, the training and the standard operating procedures are the number one thing that can help you guys keep compliant as long as it's paired with some sort of management or compliance officer or somebody within the facility that knows what they're doing. So, you know, these small businesses, we always make sure that the owners if there's an owner group and it's 10 people, or if there's an ownership group and it's two people, at least one of those people need to know the regs back and forth. And I was just say like in a funny, casual way, like your number one job is to keep out of jail. <laughs> like you're not, you're not, um, you know, slanging drugs, you're selling cannabis in a, you know, with a license in a compliant environment. So, okay. you know, I think that the barrier to entry is so high that we don't have a ton of trouble with that. Um, you know, I think that the things that have happened, uh, one of my licenses, um, up North had a problem where there was, you know, some missing cannabis and, you know, we did a full discovery on it, did a report on it. And we literally couldn't find where the problem was. The staff is tight there. The staff is like, like basically the ownership base. So it's like, nobody's going to steal like a teeny, you know, flower, um, but I think that, you know, obviously like small accidents like that can happen as long as, you know, you don't have staff that's like transporting out the back door, you're good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what are some of the bigger challenges, though, that you're seeing overall, I guess, outside of compliance, just in general? You know, I think the tone of the industry right now is a little bit grim. Um, you know, I think that we were all living in la la land where, you know, here are the projections and they're, you know, these crazy projections. And so I think everybody had painted this really unrealistic picture of what the industry is. And now there's a lot of people that are in the industry that are trying to achieve these numbers and it's just not there. Um, and that's making people kind of pull back from investing in the public markets or even investing in, you know, private companies. So, um, you know, I think that people like, I think people just went too big instead of launching a business in a conservative matter where it's like, hey, you know, you're probably not going to be profitable for two, two and a half, three years. I mean, that's normal, right? And people were putting these projections in that, you know, year one, cash flow positive, all the loans are paid off, like, you know, we're running to the bank. So I think it's a matter of, you know, just the industry really correcting itself. And that seems to be the trend. And I obviously work you know, nationally, that seems to be the trend in a lot of the other markets. Because even if there's a new social equity program, there's an old group of licensees um, that's been there and that they're experiencing kind of what the new wave of people will um, eventually. Um, and then I think that this conversation that I'm not very educated on um, with the hemp bill and with people being able to open like dispensaries and selling Delta 8 and Delta 9 is could really, really, really hinder the license. It could hinder the license values. And I know a lot of people here in Arizona have gotten involved with really understanding like what that potentially could look like. Um, in some of the like dry states, I was just in Nashville a couple weekends ago 
and there's shops all the way, like all over downtown. And they're THC shops, but they're not THC shops. Well, they are THC shops, but it's derived from hemp. Mm -hmm. So I think that those are two things that are kind of looming over the industry where everybody's a little bit like, how are we going to navigate this? It's hard for us to get cash. And then if operators are allowed to run wild and produce, you know, D8 and D9 products, where does that leave us? And where does, where, where's our business valuation? Mm -hmm. Um, so those are probably two of the hotter topics right now. Yeah. Marketing is, is, uh, also interesting because, um, you just can't do it. You can't go on a Super Bowl commercial or whatever else. So, you know, we, we try to do normal things and, and we can't get there. And so where there's all these, uh, interesting workarounds, um, Did you see Twitter? Oh, I, I, what about it? We can advertise on Twitter. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's one of the few platforms. Uh, LinkedIn has been very favorable to cannabis companies for a while. Um, yeah, which is, yeah, which is odd. Um, Instagram yeah, is a no go. TikTok's a no go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but you can actually advertise. Um, I still get shadow banned on YouTube all the time. I'll have a video that gets like 20 views, whatever, uh, whereas all the ones around it are getting thousands, whatever, on these shorts. So it's it's, it's obvious shadow banning um, that's still happening on YouTube and, and Facebook. Right. Um, so I, I want to dive into advertising, but um, I went to ChatGPT, which is an AI-based um, like search engine, I guess, asking about some... Um, themes for you um or, or mottos i guess and it came up with a couple and the first one that it recommended to you would be to call uh, your motto to weed out the competition with our advisors which i thought that was kind of cliche but but funny for for auto, you know, artificial intelligence the other one is um highly recommended by everyone who's ever tried it which i thought was Pretty clever, pretty fun. Wait, so what do you do? You just go in there and what do you, what'd you say? I went, to, I went to openai.com and I said, give, okay. me, give me three different models for this company. And I gave it your website. Oh, that's so said, cool. And I said, this is a cannabis business advisor and give me three models or, or slogans for their company. And so these are kind of a chat GPT or artificial intelligence okay. uh, you know, slogan for you. So highly recommended by everyone who's ever tried it. I thought it was was pretty clever for <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and then the third and final one is uh, our advisors are guaranteed to, guaranteed to take the edge off. And I thought it was so we're using it a bit. We're waiting for the new version that you have to pay for. I don't know like the idiosyncrasies of it because the marketing team uses it. Mm -hmm. But for us, it's been helpful. But I guess our the one we have access to, it's like the 2021 update. So from a yeah. legislative standpoint, it's like null and void. Right. Um, but I love that. And I love that. That's that's super fun. It's cool. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple other ones that don't have that limitation to 2021. Um, but regardless, it's a, it's a fun tool to use for sure. Um, there's going to be a podcast coming up about AI masterminds, um, I think on the 24th. So that'll be kind of fun okay. to, to chat about that. But what advice do you have about just regular advertising for businesses? Branding and marketing strategies um, have to be kind of almost clever or unique because you can't have like regulations or um, regular advertising because of regulations. Yeah. So we do a ton of marketing and branding just for our clients because it's so hard to hire an advertising agency that truly understands packaging, advertising restrictions. So when we start with our clients, the first thing, the first thing we start with is the regs. And I think people have a very hard time with that because they want to like 
be creative and they want to brainstorm and they want to do all of these things. Um, but, you know, some of the states like Pennsylvania, you literally have to approve every single marketing piece that goes out anywhere to the department. So if you start with the regs, you can kind of trickle down and understand the framework in which you, you know, can provide marketing or advertising to um, you know, your potential patients or customers. But when we do marketing plans for clients, we really take it back to basics. Like, what are the community events that are happening in your area? What are the local businesses that you're neighboring that you guys could do just even like direct marketing pieces to? Or like, how do you get a hold of their email list versus share, you know, share email lists back and forth? Um, some of the businesses, it's appropriate to go to like industry trade shows. Um, I'm a big fan of just like press releases and PR podcasts have been obviously amazing. Um, you know, since the pandemic, it allows you to literally take 30 minutes outside of your day and have a conversation with somebody like you and get into, I can get in touch with your audience. Um, but on a store level, we're really seeing a lot of like grassroots efforts, um, you know, I think it is important to build your your social media presence. I think your newsletter is even more important than your social media presence just because you know that you can get shadow banned or your whole page can get taken down. And then, you know, if you've spent money and time on content creation, it's gone. Um, and so we really try and do like a lot of in-store um, pieces that, you know, push people to the website, push people to the newsletter, because as long as you have their emails, you can market to them and you can continue marketing to them. Um, and that goes for like, you know, local community events. Come have a little goodie that you give away, have people enter their email addresses. Um, and I do think it's really important to have like a face of your business. Like who is the person that's at the local pizza place or at, um, you know, the local yoga studio or any of the neighboring businesses around you that's your spokesperson. Um, and that somebody's like comfortable with that people want to get to know. And, you know, that outgoing person that's almost doing like business development for you, but, you know, just really being like your, your mouthpiece. Um, I think blogging's important. Education is huge in the industry. And I think your website presence is important, not necessarily from like an SEO standpoint, but like once people like know who you are, you can really leverage your website on, you know, tips on what cannabis use for certain things. And then that content will get shared from patients or from consumers to friends, to families, um, and to people, as long as you're becoming that trusted source, um, that's educating people. What about, um, innovation? So there's, we, we just talked about kind of artificial intelligence. When I was at MJ BizCon in the fall, um, there's a lot of automation. So I would imagine that that kind of innovation, automation, AI, it's all going to kind of be integrated to some extent at some point. What are you seeing right now in terms of opportunities for growth and innovation? And what are you recommending? Growth and innovation on like the marketing side? Anything cannabis related. Yeah. Yeah. What is innovative in the cannabis industry right now? I mean, yeah, I mean, automating like, joints, I guess, is like one for thing. cultivation and stuff. Like that's you know an obvious answer where it's mm -hmm. like there's you know all these different machines that are doing what bodies did before. Before we thought it was a big deal if we had like trimmers, right? Like that <laughs> weren't people <laughs> on the cultivation and manufacturing side. Like that'll blow your mind seeing the different gummy fillers and all that stuff. I think that that's natural. 
On the dispensary side of things, I haven't really seen a ton of innovation, just to be honest. Like, I mean, what stores do you go into? Like, everybody was like, oh, I want to be the Apple store and I want to be technology. And I think technology is really important. But I also think that the industry is new enough where you have to have bodies. You have to have people making this a comfortable experience, especially for the people that are out-of-town visitors coming into a rec facility for the first time or somebody that really needs something for their migraine, for their cramps, for their cancer, whatever that looks like. Because even in rec markets, those people exist. So... I don't know if I'm old school or I try and complicate the industry more just because I know too much about it. Um, But from like a technology standpoint, I think it's nice to have a hybrid where if I want to do online ordering, I can jump on, you know, whatever app or computer, I can purchase it, I can run in and I can run out. But I don't know how like long we are from like completely offsetting that. I'm sure it's to come. I'm sure that's in our future. Um, where there's like, you know, machines filling the orders and things like that. Um, But for now, while it's still a really new industry, I am a fan of like bodies helping people answering questions, being informative and educating. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier if you have to, the whole education part, if you have to educate and then sell, it's a lot easier to do that with the human um, and especially in person. Uh, What are you seeing that are, that's, um, successful? Is there a, a, an equation there that you could copy and paste? Or what are just some of like the the key success factors that you're constantly seeing? You know, I think your like morals and ethics have to be intact. I think that your motivation to be in the industry is very important. If it's just money, I don't see that the shops do as well. I think that there has to be some heart and soul in these businesses in order for them to succeed. And we've seen that story play out multiple times with some of the publicly traded companies that grew too fast and had no vibe or culture or core competencies. Um, any of our stores, we like to have our core competencies where we're focusing on the customer, we're focusing on the community, um, we're focusing on our standard operating procedures, we're focusing on, focusing on like, you know, a systematic approach in the sense of if you come in and ask me what you need for, you know, y- your lifestyle and for what your goals are with cannabis, like I want my staff saying the same things. And so we have training tools on that. Um, that, you know, basically here's your patient's journey or your patient's path and you take them down that path that includes, you know, their lifestyle, what they're like looking for cannabis for, um, and whether they want something that's more uplifting or something that's more like bedtime. Um, and so I think consistency is super important, but, you know, I don't think it's like five things that make the store magical. I think that it's a lot of different things, but I think that that starts with the two things that you have to have is the team and the location. So, you know, really playing into like what your location is. Um, Early in my career, I liked high-end stores and I built a lot of high-end stores. And then I was contracted to work in um, the Tucson environment, which if you haven't been to Tucson, it's like very hippy-dippy. It's college town. And we were talking about doing some remodels and <laughs> the guys are like, no, you, you can't pull this off in, in, in Tucson. And so that was a really interesting learning curve for me in the sense that, you know, after that, it was great to hear no from them. It was great to hear feedback that my plan wasn't the best because moving forward, I always make sure 
I truly understand the environment that we're putting this store in and so that we can be a local community business that looks and feels like the, the community surrounding it does. Yeah. Yeah. Know your audience, I guess. When I worked at Bank of America, they were trying to implement some stuff and I'm like, maybe that works in the Carolinas. That is not going to work in Seattle. Like, <laughs> they wanted us to go and like talk to people. And in Seattle, it's, we have this thing called the Seattle freeze. It's like, get off my lawn. I don't know you, you know, like get away from me. <laughs> and if you're going to run up to somebody be like, Hey, how can I help you? Can I, whatever, whatever. And like, get like, who are you? you? Who the hell are you? Yeah. So I was like, I was labeled as a resistor, which I took pride in. Uh, <laughs> it's not Minnesota nice over there. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we'll wave at you from afar, but it's like, again, like just stay off my lawn kind of thing. So. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, all right. Last question. Um, you, we kind of talked about how a lot of the industry has this misguided understanding about the short term turnover or, you know, legalization is going to happen and you have to be in this for the long haul. And a lot of people um, have not prepared for that. So what advice do you have for entrepreneurs ready to get into the game uh, and how they can best position themselves for long-term success? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's like knowing your craft, knowing your market, figuring out what your expansion plans are if you have any. But like federal legalization, if done right, isn't going to change everything significantly in the sense that I, I can't see a model where they're like, oh, here's the new regulations and you just have to abide by those because we still have state legislation in place that will exist that people are going to have to, um, you know, abide by. And it goes off of the community topic that we just talked about. People ask me the question all the time. What's the best program? There is not a best program. There's not a best program. The best program is crafted specifically for the environment in which it exists. And those are the programs that we see flourish where it wasn't a copy and paste from Colorado. It wasn't a copy and paste from whatever their neighboring states are. And so for me, I mean, yes, watch the different bills that are passing. And, you know, if we got something, you know, that would actually get passed from, you know, a 280 standpoint or a banking standpoint, that could change the industry in a way that it would make it easier for us to do business, but it wouldn't upset our like normal flow of business. It would just make it easier. So for me, I'm always just like, okay, like keep your eye on the prize and keep up to date on what's happening federally. But know your state landscape, know what changes are happening, know what emergency rules have been released, and just stay compliant in your environment. Mm -hmm. All right. We talked a lot. But I'm sure there's uh, going to be a lot of other questions that people have. If they want to get a hold of you, where can they do that at? Uh, Thecannabisbusinessadvisors.com. Very creative, but definitely Googleable. And then I have a personal website that's just my first and last name, Sarah Gullickson. And then we will put Sarah's information for LinkedIn in the comments because YouTube um, hates everything else. Uh, but with that, we're going to have to roll this one up. So I want to thank my guest, thank my guest Sarah Gullickson, founder and CEO of Cannabis Business Advisors. Sarah, thanks again for being on The Talking Hitch. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, obviously, I appreciate it as well. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hitch. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Or don't. And I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com.
Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.